excited to be here and to teach. We have a church we go to down there, and I just got, it was wonderful to be able to go. And, and when I get away like that, God's able to speak to me sometimes more directly and clearly than when I'm here. And we've gotten to meet the pastor. It's a very large church down there. And through a connection, we've gotten to meet this pastor. And, and um, I had dinner with him one night and was just talking about what a blessing it is to come and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to look at the stage and say, that light bulb's out. Who's going to take care of this? I can just, we can just come and receive. Both Anita and I can just come and receive. And God really spoke some things to, to us. And um, we're going to begin to, you'll begin to hear some of that. I'm sure it will leak out soon. Praise God. But I'm excited to be back. Anita, we're both excited to be in church tonight. This is home. No matter where we go, we're ready to come back. This is home. Your family. And this is the Word of God. And this is what God made me to do. So I, I couldn't be any happier than if I had sense, as Pastor Sam used to say. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. He said that. I'm just quoting him. James chapter 1. We started several weeks ago just to go through the book of James. We may not get all through it because we haven't been out of the first chapter yet. And I'm not even going to take the time to start reading down through it because the temptation will be to stop on something. But a little bit of background because it's been several weeks. I appreciate Pastor Michael. I know he did a great job. And uh, you're always in good hands. We just have some very wonderful, gifted men of God here. And I know that it's always in good hands when I leave. And uh, you're going to be fed well. And, um, but we're talking about the book of James. And just a little bit of background is this book was written most likely by the half-brother of Jesus. And it was written to Jewish believers that had been persecuted in Jerusalem. And as a result of that, they had been dispersed. They had spent, most of them ended up in Asia, what was then Asia Minor, Minor, which is Turkey now. And, and because they were separated from the mother church and from their source of strength, and, and again, because they didn't have internet, of course, back then. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have phones. It was all by writing letters. And it would take weeks, sometimes months, for that letter to get there. They lost connection with really their main feeding, their, the, 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 the disciples. And so they, as a result, they began to shift, drift away into some things, and then they were being persecuted. And, I, and when they were persecuted, it wasn't the people were laughing at them or criticizing their favorite football team. It was literally they lost everything. Many of them lost everything. They lost their livelihood. Their families, in some cases, kicked them out. So these were people that really went through difficult times. Some of them were just, their family members were executed. And, and so there was a very challenging time. So they were going through trials and difficult times. And this was a very practical letter written to them to how to deal with going through those difficult times. Now, Hebrews is, a very, is written to a similar issue, which is written to, to, to Jewish believers that were being tempted to go back under the old Jewish ways. So there's a much more theology in that book. There's much more relationship with God and through the Holy Spirit with Jesus. But what this book is about is very practical things. In many ways, it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, which is very practical. So we've talked about uh, uh, going through trials, and, and, and we spent a week or so talking about, or Wednesday night or so, talking about, because he talks about some trials that they go through, and then he's going to talk about temptations, which is what we're going to look at tonight. And it's, it's, this, it's a similar Greek word, but we talked about what the difference is. Trials are things that are, come into our lives, whether they've come from God or from our own stupid mistakes or even just Satan, but they, God will use them to test us. And when God tests us, He already knows what's in us. 
but he's testing us to prove it for us and to bring out what's in us. Sometimes what it takes a difficult thing for, for things you know inside to be brought out of us because we're lazy. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> if we can get by with just coasting, we will. And so what these difficult times do is it forces us to dig down inside to what we really believe. It also exposes what we really believe. Then I shared again some of the testimony of what I've gone through with health issues over this last year, and it showed me where my faith was. But God wasn't doing that. First of all, God didn't cause this in my life, but God was using it for me to find out where I really was. God already knew, but I needed to face the truth of where I was so that I could begin to grow. And out of that, I've grown tremendously over the last year. So trials of the up, because that's why he says counted all joy. We went through all of that. But now we're going to get into a different section of this, which is very practical. And this is something God began to do with me just the other day. So we're going to pick up in verse 12, James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he's been approved, that word means past it, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted by God, that when he's tempted, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fulfilled, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be kind of a first fruits of his creation. So in verse 12, he begins to talk about enduring or coming through temptations, and when we come through it, to be approved. So it tells us that, that there are going to be issues in life. A temptation is something that... Let's go back a second. Because I said that the tests, either whether they come from God or God uses them, the purpose of a test is for you to find out what's really going on inside of you. A temptation comes from Satan. And its purpose isn't to prove anything about you. Its purpose is to destroy you, to distract you, and to pull you off course. That's the purpose of it. Because God has a course and a purpose for your life. And the devil wants to pull you off of that course. And ultimately, if he can pull you away from God, if he, can, he won't pull God away from you. He can't do that. But if you follow him, he can pull you away from God. And some of you have been there. And so that's ultimately what he's after. If he can't do that, he wants to distract you. And he wants to destroy your testimony and destroy your life. We're not talking about whether you're going to go to heaven or not. We're talking about what he wants to do with you here. So the difference is the purpose of a temptation is to draw you off course, is to pull you away, is to distract you, and ultimately to destroy you. So... This talks about overcoming. Blessed is a man who endures or overcomes the temptation for when he's been approved, that word is a word that means when he's passed the test, he will receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the Lord has promised a crown of life to those who love him, 
But in the process of getting to that place, you are going to go through temptations. There are things you are going to have to overcome. One of the words, because I'm just, the way God works with me is just with words. And I'll have a word that'll just kind of highlight in verses. A word that'll kind of roll around inside of me. Ever have a word just kind of highlight on a page for you? Well, that's what this, the word overcome has been there for a long time. Because that word overcome tells me there's some things to overcome. It tells me that once I, once I, once I'm saved, once I become part of God's kingdom, that now, you know, it's just not a rosy path. In fact, Jesus warned us. He said there are two roads in life. There's one road that's wide and it's easy. There's nothing to overcome. Why? Because the flow of this world is all headed down that path. So it's very easy to go down that path. In fact, if you do nothing, you will go down that path. The problem is where that path heads. Because Jesus said that path leads to destruction. So if you don't want to be destroyed, don't go down that path. There's some, you know, <laughs> there's some things in life that are just simple common sense, and yet we miss them. So we think I can walk down that road, but I'm not going to end up at that destination. Now, when we came back from vacation Sunday afternoon, <laughs> I'm getting on the plane, and suddenly I had this thought, I wonder if I'm on the right plane. Years ago, before they had boarding passes and all that, I was flying with my father. I was a little boy, and we got on the plane. They announced where it was going to, and my father said, oops. <laughs> we were on the wrong plane. Now, nowadays, with the boarding passes that they scan, it's kind of hard. But I'm standing in line ready to handle the boarding pass, and I was like, I wonder if, in fact, there was a guy behind us coming down. He headed the wrong boarding pass to her, and he had to get out of line again. So the point is this. That's common sense. If I wanted to end up back in Providence, I had to get on flight 66, whatever it was. Because if I got on flight 249 that's going to Phoenix, I'm not going to end up in, 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 I don't care how much faith I have, I'm not going to end up in Providence because the plane I'm on is headed to Phoenix. So when I make a reservation for us, I start out by telling them my destination. And then they tell me how to get there. So you've got to look at the destiny. If you want your life destroyed, if you want your body destroyed, if you want your life destroyed, I can tell you the plane to get on. And it's easy, because everybody else is lined up to get on it. In fact, there's no line. There's no waiting. It's easy. I'm talking about Christians. But there's another path, Jesus said. Praise God, there's another path. The problem with this path is it's not wide. It's narrow. And the word narrow there implies that you can't just get everything in it. That you can't just bring all your luggage and all your backpacks and all the stuff you want to bring along. It's only narrow enough for you to get through. In fact, not all of you get through it. There's some things in your flesh that can't get through it either. It's narrow, which means it's not, and it's not easy. But if you're on that path, it leads to eternal life. So you've got to decide which path you want to walk down based on what destination you want to get to. Not on how easy it is. And here's one of the problems of our generation right now. And by that, I'm not talking about whatever age you are, the era we live in. We live in an era of ease and comfort and impatience. 
I've told you before, I've never, I, I, I never remember, and this is when I think we just moved down here, we just started coming here 26 or 7 years ago, and we still had two of our kids at home, and we were leaving a service, and this because we were in a hurry, and I wouldn't do this now, but nothing personal, but we stopped at McDonald's, because we were in a hurry to get some food. And I'm standing in line between four people in front of me, and I'm getting like this. And I get in line, and, I'm, and I order the food, and it's taking more than two minutes to get it back. And I'm getting frustrated, and I went, wait a minute, this is a fast food restaurant. And I'm imp- I, I, I can't handle it if it's taking more than two minutes. Something's wrong with this picture. Because we've gotten used to that. We've gotten used to, you know, having faster and faster computers and faster and faster things. I was getting frustrated at my Bible software the other day on my iPad because it was taking longer to come up. It, took, it used to come up in five seconds, now it was 25 seconds. But see, if you get used to that, you get discouraged or upset or, or frustrated with something that's not what you're used to. The problem is when you come to the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. God doesn't work through microchips and processors and solid-state devices. God still works the way He worked back when Jesus walked on the earth, when Moses walked on the earth, when Abraham walked on the earth. God still works the same way. He doesn't change. We just read it. There's no variation in Him. And, you, and God won't do things on your timetable. We have to do things on His timetable in His way. And so, so, I don't know how I got off on that. Who got me off on that? Don, did you get me off on that? Okay, all right. Okay, good. I'll let you off the hook. What was, how did I get, what did I, what was I talking about? Let's take a vote. <laughs> that shows you how many messaging it preaches on Wednesday night. Huh? Impatience, okay. Testing, okay, that's good. Keep going. It'll come back at some point. Huh? Temptation. I know that's where I've got to end up. I better go back. Oh, overcoming. Thank you. Overcoming. Overcoming implies there's going to have to be some obstacle that I have to overcome. That it's not just going to be a bed of ease that there's going to be opposition. We talked earlier on about when you go through trials, it means you're going to go through trials. Jesus at one point says, you know, that, that, that if you've given up everything for me, you're going to get in this life, houses, and, and family. Yeah, you're going to get them with persecutions. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have that promise on your refrigerator? We don't need the promise because it's going to come. The point is this. There are things we have to overcome. And if you accept that and prepare for that, that God equips us to overcome them, then you're not going to want to run away from it when that overcoming thing comes. So I want to just read through some scriptures. I'm not going to put them up on the board because there's too many. I just want to talk about overcoming. First of all, Jesus, I want, we will put this one up. John 16, Jesus says, Fear not, for I, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have, what? Peace. peace. You, that was pretty weak. In me you may have peace. peace. Do you need peace in your life? He's going to tell you how. In, that in me... You will have peace. We, we may spend some time on this. Because one of the things 
that the church, and I'm not just talking about us, that the church by and large lacks is peace. We've got as many Christians taking pills for peace. And if, you have to, if you're doing that, there's no condemnation for that if you need to do that. But God's ultimate answer is not a prescription. So don't throw your prescription out. But God's ultimate answer is, in me, you have peace. The problem is, the church is trying to find peace in the world. The world can't give you peace. Just read your newspaper. Just turn on CNN, Fox News, whatever it is. There's no peace out there, and they can't give you peace. Whether they're Republicans, Democrats, Independents, or other crats, they can't give you peace because they don't have it to give. The world is not at peace because the world is under the control and authority of the God of this world who is Satan. Now, I don't have time to give you all the scriptures to support that. But Jesus says, in me you have peace. So the world can't find that peace, but we have him living in us. So the place you're going to find the peace is not looking at your bank account, whether it's good or bad. Not looking at your, at your, at your body, not looking at your family. The place you're going to find peace is in here, in your relationship with him. And we spend so little time with him and wonder why we can't find peace. In me, you have peace. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. Here's another one of these simple things. In the world, you have tribulation. Now, in the world does not just mean outside these doors, out in Seekonk and Pawtucket and wherever you live. You can be in the world sitting in that blue chair. Because it's not just physically where you are, it's where your mind is. It's where your thinking is, and ultimately it's where your heart is. What has your heart? Does the world, its possessions, its, its thinking, its systems, its methods, its values, does that, does that have a hold of your heart? Then you're in the world. I'm not saying you're not in the kingdom of God, but you're living in the world. So many Christians, their spirit man's in the kingdom of God, and the rest of them's living in the world. Because we're walking, we're talking like the world, we're thinking like the world, we're acting like the world. The world can't tell there's any difference between us and them. So why should they become Christians when we're just like us? But when they see peace that passes understanding, when they see peace, I'll never forget, I've told you this before. When I, we were out in Tulsa, we were in Bible school, and I was practicing law there for a short period of time. I was working in a law firm, small law firm, and the senior partner's daughter was working there, and I'm walking down the hall one with, the, with some books going somewhere, and she says, John, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She says, what do you have that I don't have? And I'm looking at books, because my mind's on my work. I, I said, what do you mean? She says, I know what your family's going through. There was some financial difficulty we were having, some other things. She says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're doing, because I left this large law firm in Boston, and I just left everything. Just left it and moved out there with, with nothing to do, and God was sustaining us and taking care of us. And I forget how foreign that is. When I did that, the partner I work with in Boston cried. I had partners coming to my office crying about what I was about to do. And they, they, they didn't even know why, because it didn't compute with the world's method of doing things. I was going contrary to the way they think and do things. 
And I remember sitting down with a lawyer, that the lawyer partner I worked under, and he was like a father to me. We were very close. And he was scared. He kept trying to talk me out of doing this, and I would pray. I said, God, how do, what, do, what do I do? And he said, you've got to understand. I spoke to you to do this. And because I spoke to you, it gave you the faith to do it. I didn't speak to him about your going. So he's looking at what you're doing through his natural worldly understanding, and it makes no sense, and it's a scary thing. They offered me all kinds of things to keep me to stay, but nothing could move me because it wasn't that was why. I wasn't going to a better position. <laughs> when I left the last law firm, I told my partner, I said, I've got a new job offer. It's for more, it's for more work and less money. He looked at me, I said, I'm going back in the ministry. Oh, I understand now. So my point is this. It didn't make sense to them. It didn't compute with them. But what gripped her, this, I'm, back, I'm back in Tulsa now. What gripped her was she could see a peace, because she said, you have a peace in this. I don't understand. It's the peace that passes understanding. And I used that as an opportunity. said, do you really want to know what it is? She said, yes. I said, well, come into the library here. I said, it's not what I have. It's who I have. My peace is in my relationship with Jesus. And she kind of looked at me like, oh, <laughs> that wasn't the answer she was looking for. But the point is she could see something. And so it's the presence of God in us. It's the peace of God in us that is the witness to the world, a witness to the world. It's one of many witness to the world that he really lives in us, that the Prince of Peace really lives in us. And so, I don't know how I got off on that one, but we're talking about, oh yeah, Jesus said, in, you can put it up back up again. These things I spoke, in me you have made peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So whatever's going to come against you, whatever the world can bring against you, I have overcome it. I have overcome it. Now I'm just going to read down through, well, there's another place where Jesus said, in verse John 5, verse 4, for whatever's born, so that's Jesus is overcome. Whatever's born of God, if you're born of God, it says, we've overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Because faith allows us to see a victory that our natural senses don't tell us. So in the middle of what the, the, the difficult things were going on in our life at that time, financial difficulties, I mean, I, I, wanna, I don't want to go on through it. I mean, we had no health insurance and suddenly we get out there and find out my wife's pregnant in our late 30s and then discover it's twins. No health insurance. And we're facing the hospital for two children to be born. Oh, I had no job either at the time. Not the wisest planning. But I had no fear. There was peace in us. Why? Because the Prince of Peace was in us. But it was my, our faith that God was going to take care of us that helped us to overcome so it's not just we automatically overcome because He's overcome. We have to walk in faith in what He has overcome and not be moved by the circumstances. So it's our faith that helps us to overcome the world, the world system, because we're living in a very dangerous time right now. But why can we live in peace? Why do we need to be living in peace? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Okay, all right. Now, I want to show you very quickly why overcoming is so important. I want to read from you. There are others that I could give you. I want to read from you that um, some scriptures out of Revelation. This is the first out of the first couple of chapters in Revelation that where Jesus 
is is saying some specific messages to seven specific churches. And it's a different thing he says to each of them, but there's some similarities. One of the similarities is, now that I've told you this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to this church. And God, the Spirit of God saying something to Faith Christian Center. The question is, do we have the ears to hear it? Not these ears, the ears in here. But one of the other things he said, and I'm going to go through these, he talked to them about overcoming. Overcoming. Revelation 2.7, he says, He was in ear to hear them, hear what the Spirit says to churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. God. Revelation 2.11, He was in ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who is near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give a white stone. Revelation 2.26, And him who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Oh, that's an important one. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 3.12 He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar of my temple of my God. And shall, he shall go out no more, and I shall write his name, write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Revelation 3.21 To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Revelation 11.7 When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends at the bottomless pit, I will make war against him that overcome them and kill them. He was, it was granted to him, verse Revelation 13.7 It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 7 He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In Revelation 12, it says, and that he, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. But that's where most songs stop. There's another part to it. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's what Jesus did. By the word of their te- our testimony, that's what we say and declare about who he is. And they loved not their life to the death. Now we're talking about the narrow Road, They love not their life to the death. So the whole point of this is to understand that we are in a battle and we have an adversary, Satan, who is going to try to throw in our, in our who will throw in our past, who has thrown in our past, obstacles to overcome, distractions to overcome, all kinds of things. And we're going to see in a minute, he knows you well enough. Let me say one thing, because I don't talk about Satan a lot. But you will most likely never encounter him. And I will, because mo- we're not important enough. Satan can only be in one place at one time. He is a created being. He is a fallen, fallen angel. God, on the other hand, is in all places at all times. So they're not even. This is not an even battle. Between, but by the way, Jesus told us how long the rebellion lasted in heaven. He says, I saw Satan fall like a bolt of lightning. So it didn't last long. So, but here's the point. You have an adversary. And he's trying to distract you and deceive you and to pull you off course. So we need to be, we know, the Bible, Paul says, do not be ignorant of his devices. 
So what we're about to see is James is talking to them in the middle of their trials and the difficult times to recognize that in the middle of this trial and there's temptations that come and, and if, you've, if you've ever been through a difficult time, you find out that your resistance is lower in those difficult times than it is when you're sitting on a beach sipping an iced tea, you know, and ba- basking in the sun and, you know, everything's going well in your life. It's somehow easier to deal with most things than when you're tired when you're discouraged, when you've been fighting a battle. But let me tell you a secret. I learned this a long time ago. The time you are the most vulnerable is right after a victory. If Satan can't defeat you, he'll back off, let you win. And then what happens is once we win, we start relaxing because the pressure's off and we begin to let down and that's when he comes after us. It says in Jesus, in, in, in I think it's Luke's version of the temptation in the wilderness, because he tempted Jesus. In fact, one of the accounts implies it was more than three times. But we have the accounts of the three temptations. And in one of them, it says at the end, after Jesus stood the third time, it said, and Satan left him for a more opportune time. So he didn't give up. He said, okay, this isn't working. So I'll wait and see if I can get him at another time. So your adversary never gives up. But fear not, our Savior's overcome Him. So all we got to do is stay close to Him and walk with Him and we'll overcome. But there's some practical things we need to learn. And the Bible is so wonderful because it not only tells us and gives us warning, it tells us exactly how the enemy's going to... This is like having your enemy's ga- your, your opponent's game plan. It's like having their whole game plan of how what kind of plays they're going to run and what how they're going to come about you. And so they, you know, it's like some of these football games when they get the commentators get talk talking about. Well, you know, the team they're about they're about they're about to play. The coaches on there, some of the players just came from this team, so they know their playbook. So it's like we know here's the devil's playbook. We have it right here. So we're without excuse. So God's here to help. He's, he's done everything for us except the part we have to do because there's a part God does and there's a part we have to do. So we need to find this out. Let's look at this together. Uh, well, let's look first of all at verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Every good and every perfect gift is from above comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation of turning. So this is real simple. If it's good, it's come from God. If it's not good, it's not come from God. God's very simple. He's not complex, at least when His dealings with us, because we're simple. We may think we're smart and sophisticated, but compared to God, we're little kids. And it's very simple. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So if something's stealing from you, killing in you, whether it's your body or something, or destroying you, Jesus tells us where it's come from. Satan's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But he said, then the other side, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So it's life-giving to you. It's coming from God. If it's killing, stealing, and destroying, it comes from our adversary. If it's good, it comes from above. If it's destroying us like temptations, it's come from our enemy. 
Okay. And there's no change in that. God doesn't change today. He wasn't one thing in the Old Testament and something new in the New Testament. He never changes. All right. Our understanding of Him may change. But here, okay, with that background, verses 14 and 15 give us a progression by which the devil comes at us to tempt us. Remember what he's trying to do? He's trying to draw us off course. And we're going to walk through these. we got time. Okay. So, this is so powerful, but we read through them so quickly. Verse 14. So, verse 13, we see God doesn't tempt anybody. He can't be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone with evil. Verse 14. But when each one is tempted, which means we're all tempted, each one is tempted, he's drawn away by our own, his own desires. So the first thing we see here is Satan can only use your desires to draw you away. He can only use your desires to draw you away. So if there's something you have no interest in, no caring about, he can't tempt you with this. This is not a good example. It was the only one I could think of quickly earlier today. And if you're a fisherman, you love fishing, it's nothing to do with fishing, I just don't, it doesn't do anything for me. Maybe because when I was a boy, I never caught a fish. And I figured out standing there with a hook in the water for two hours just wasn't doing anything for me. If it produced results, I could understand it, but I never caught a fish, and maybe I didn't catch a fish because I didn't like fishing, and then like fishing because I didn't catch a fish. I don't know which came first. I just don't, fishing doesn't. So, so you can't tempt me. Don't, don't go to work today. We're going to go fishing. Have a good time. Enjoy it. Go for it. I understand you love, people love fishing. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, don't eat, it's your job, I know. It doesn't do anything for me. So I can, I'm not tempted to go fishing. So, it's not the greatest example, but, so, but there are things I do like. There are, there are foods I like, we won't go there. There are certain things I like, and I can be, and I have a desire for them. Now, we're going to learn in a minute, there's nothing wrong with desire. Now, some desires are clearly wrong. But there's some good desires. God gave us desires, so first of all, we can desire Him. We can desire the things of God. There's, 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 there's nothing wrong in itself with desire. The religion will tell you that. So you've got to sit on a hill somewhere away from the world, all by yourself, contemplating your navel, so that you take all temptations and all desires away from you, that doesn't strengthen you. That doesn't strengthen you. There are people that live in monasteries that are tempted by all kinds of things, even though they're not around them, because it's in their mind. You can do so much with your mind, even though it's not actually physically there. So, but it's, he uses our desires. So if we understand, first of all, the only avenue he has to tempt me is something that I desire. Okay, that's important. First of all, that means we know where the attack's going to come. We know where the attack's going to come. Let's go quickly to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll see the first example of this. This is very important tonight. Of course, God, Genesis 1 and 2, God's created the man, the woman, He's created the earth, all the creation, 
created Eden, the garden, put them in it, and everything just wonderful. And now the tempter comes. The tempter comes to tempt them. The serpent, Satan. And notice in verse 1 it says he's more cunning than all the beasts. So he's going to use cunning. And I've talked to you about this many times. Satan does very rarely will come at you directly. He will use cunning and deceit. So the very thing he makes it looks like he's doing for you, because that's what's attractive, is not what he's really after. He's like a pickpocket. A pickpocket doesn't come up and say, um, excuse me, would you take your hand out of your pocket? I would like your wallet. Oh, thank you. No, he misdirects you by touching you somewhere or having somebody else touch you, draw your attention somewhere else so he can go what he's really after. So what I've learned is if I'm in an area with a lot of crowds and I'm concerned about that, I'm not, I'm not watching what's going on around me. I'm conscious of my, I got my hand back here because I know what they're after. I'm not care if somebody bumps into me. I'm not going to go. I'm going to keep my finger there because I know what a pickpocket's after. And if I keep my focus on what he's after, I'm not distracted by the deceit that he tries to bring to me. That's a very simple example, but we bring it over into our spiritual walk. That's a very clear example because he's never after what it appears to. He's trying to distract. Distract means get your eyes off of where you're supposed to be. So, okay. So let's begin to look at the Genesis chapter 3. How did he do that? Verse 6, this is the part we'll look at. So when the woman saw, when the woman saw, so that's another thing. He uses our physical senses. When the woman saw, that's with her eyes, that the tree was good for fruit. Now that's the very tree God said with his words, don't eat the fruit of it. So the very thing Satan's tempting them to do is to violate God's word. But what he's really after is to get them to take their lives into their own hands. And when they do that, they take them out of God's. Okay. When the woman saw, what had happened before that, I want to have time to go back. He talks to her about the fruit. He talks to her about what God said and what God's holding back from her. He talks to her, and I've told you before, why is she listening? Why is she listening? It's worth going back over for a minute. Because God had put her husband in charge of the garden, and her with him. So it wasn't a matter of he was more important than she was. He put them in charge of the garden. They let the serpent in. Then the serpent speaks to her, and her husband's standing right there, and he lets him speak to her. Now, I don't have a long time to go through all this, but in a court, you cannot approach the judge. You can't even speak until the judge gives you permission to speak, even if you're one of the lawyers on the case. So you have to be acknowledged before you have the right, the standing to speak. Satan had no standing to speak unless Adam and Eve gave it to him. If they didn't, if she didn't answer him, there was nothing he can do. You know, you don't have to answer every question that's asked of you. You don't, have to, you don't have to respond just because somebody says something. There were times people close to Jesus told him something and he didn't answer him. He didn't respond. 
seemed uncaring because he wasn't moved by what they said. He followed what the Spirit of God inside of him was telling him to do. Didn't he say, I only do what I see my, I only do, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear my Father saying. So I don't respond quickly to somebody unless I know that's what my Father is responding to them. Which means there's time when he didn't respond at all and looked uncaring because of that. Mary and Martha example. I mean, Lazarus is dying. They send a messenger to him, says, your good friend Lazarus, your good friend Lazarus is dying. You better get here quickly because we know you can do something about it. And he stayed two more days. By the time he got there, he's four days late to his good friend's funeral. And Martha and Mary come out, whom he loved dearly, we know it because he was grieved. He cried. He wept over the situation. And he, they said to him, "If Master, if you'd only been here, imagine what was the sound. If you'd only been here. If you'd only come when we called you. But he didn't react to the situation. He responded to the leadership of the Spirit of God inside of him. But here they didn't do that. Here they answered him. And the moment, they, listen carefully, the moment they answered him, they gave him a place to speak into their lives. The moment they responded to his temptation, they gave him the right to speak into their lives. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And look how he did it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a, a tree desirable. What are we talking about? Our desires. Our own desires. And when he saw, they saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she had a desire to be wise. And this temptation pulled on her desire to be wise. Now, I was me- as I was meditating on that today, what I began to see is there's nothing... Listen very carefully to this, because I've never seen this before or taught this before. There's nothing wrong with a desire for wisdom. The Bible tells us to get wisdom. So her desire to be wise was something God put in her. It was a God-given desire. But here's where it goes off. It was desirable to make one or oneself wise. Wisdom, the Bible says, only comes from God. And God wanted to pour out on them as He does on us a wisdom in abundance but that wisdom is going to only come from God because true wisdom only comes from God. And where the desire becomes an opening for sin is when we try to satisfy the desire apart from God. I'm going to go over that again because it's very important. Religion will tell you don't have desires. It's wrong. It's sinful to have desires. Now again, there's clearly things. But those are lusts. And that's just selfish. But human natural desires to eat, to enjoy your food, to enjoy your life, to enjoy vacations, 
to enjoy things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things and having desires as long as those, the source of those desires are coming, the meeting of those is coming from God. Because He wants to meet those needs. He wants to be the one that meets your desires. And here where they got, she got off, she had the desire to be wise, but she was willing to have herself be the one that made herself wise, to take that wisdom into our own hands. Can you see that? All right, four of you can. That's good. So the heir was to satisfy the desire herself, apart from God satisfying it. So this beginning place is that Satan uses our own desires, good desires, godly desires. This was a godly desire to be wise. But the temptation was, but he had said to her earlier, if you obey God, he's trying to keep something from you. He's trying to hide something from you. So take it into your own hands. Exercise your own independent judgment about what you need apart from what God knows you need. And that's where the sin occurred. That's where the door was open. That's the root of all sin is self. Self-determination, self-will. I'm going to decide it myself. I have the right to make my own decisions about my own body, my own soul. I have the right to make my own decisions. And what that's basically is rebellion. Because it's, it's, it's acting as if I created myself. I created myself, therefore I own myself, I have my own rights. <laughs> Every breath I breathe is a gift from God. Every beat of my heart. One of the things I pray many mornings is just talking to God and worshiping Him. Father, this life that's in me came from you. I can't create life. Oh, my wife and I, she conceived, we together conceived, she gave birth to four children, but we didn't put the life in them. We can't create life. That life in me come from you, oh God. And it's sustained by you. Far more, in far many more ways than I've even begun to understand, but I believe that principle, that you are the source of everything. So why would I have the right to try to establish, and not only that, you can't do it. Because there are only two kingdoms out there. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You can't establish your own independent kingdom. Because if you've got your own independent kingdom, I can tell you which kingdom you're in. And it's not God's. Okay. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's see how Paul dealt with this. Because Paul was very much aware of this issue. This verse has troubled me. Not because I don't understand it, but because I do understand it. (laughs) Verse 27. He's talked about how his whole life is purposeful. He said, a boxer doesn't just throw punches. A boxer has a goal, a purpose for each punch he throws. An athlete, when he's running a race, has a goal that's been set before him. He said, so I I I don't live my life as if every day is just one day after another. There's a purpose for my life. I know what the purpose is for my life. And everything I do is to help carry out that purpose. And then, because this is, a, I didn't see this before, but this is like this issue because I see, he realizes I can be distracted off of my course. So what do I do? But, this is the, this, the but refers to 
I've done, I know all this, this is my purpose, but I have to realize I can't just have that purpose, but I discipline my body. <laughs> I don't like this, but it's in there. But God disciplines my body. It doesn't say that, does it? See, there are things God will do, and there are things I have to do. <laughs> Pastor Jack Hayford says that, that you know, you can't, you can't cast the, you, God won't cast a demon out. You've got to do that. And, and God can't control your flesh. You've got to put your flesh under. So that's our part. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, which means it doesn't want to. The part of you that's left that still wants to live like the world is your flesh, your body. I discipline my body and bring it under subjection. Now the word discipline there, there's a word discipline in the New Testament, which is a Greek word which means to train. This is a different word. Some translations say I buffet, not buffet. I buffet my body. And the word actually comes, and I've got to be quick on this, the word actually comes from a Greek word that was a term that was used for boxers. Because what boxers used to do, the biggest problem, and I, was, I had a, a, a gentleman I knew that was a gold gloves boxer, and he taught me some things. But one of the things I've learned about boxing, and I'm, I'm not a boxer, is that, the, remember the movie Rocky? What happened is, he got hit in the face so much that his cheeks started swelling. And the problem is, his cheeks started swelling is it closed his eyes off. And it's kind of dangerous when you've got a guy six inches away from you who has the ability and the desire to pound your head into the canvas and you can't see him. So remember what they did with Rocky? I won't, I won't go there. So the problem is they want to prepare their face so that it doesn't bruise so easily. So what a boxer would do in those days, training for the Olympics, is they would take straps of leather and they would embed in them pieces of stone and sharp things and then they would take that leather strap on their head and they'd hit their own face. Because that way they're doing it, they're preparing themselves for when they get in that ring with that opponent and that opponent's trying to jab them and cause that swelling. Their face is already toughened up. It's become insensitive. Listen carefully. It's become insensitive to the blows of the enemy. And that's what that word discipline is. He says, I do that to my body to bring it under subjection. Look at this. Lest after I preach to others, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, brought the church, the gospel, to Asia Minor, brought the gospel over into, into Greece, Macedonia, and then down to Achaia, who went into jail, was beaten, all those things he went through. And he says, lest having then done all of that, I myself personally in my own life should be disqualified. This is a very humbling thing for pastors. A pastor doesn't get a free pass because he preaches a good message and preaches a message and people get saved and the church does all things they're supposed to do. My own walk with God, my own discipline affects my own ability to live my own life and not be distracted. Now I'm not talking about whether you go to heaven or not. I don't want to get into that issue. Because you can refer to a prize, Whatever it, is, I don't, whatever it is, I don't want to be disqualified. I want to finish my course. I want to get one of those crowns that you... I want to overcome. But to do that, 
I have to take responsibility for my flesh. And Paul, James is talking here about that the way Satan comes at us is our own desires. So we have to be on top of our desires. We have to have control over our desires. And, and, and the good news is, in the very verse, we're going to have to stop here in a minute, the very verse that some people get trouble with, where, remember where, where Jesus is in the garden, and he says, Peter, James, and John, you stay here and pray, and I'm going to, I'm going to go over here, and he's going through the, the agony of his life, and he comes back in there. They're praying in the Spirit. <laughs> Different language. They're asleep. And he says, what, can't you watch with me an hour? And he says, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I read that one day and said, that's good news. Because this big opponent I have is weak. You say, my flesh isn't weak. That's because you're not exercising discipline over it. That's because you've let it do what it wants to do. Our flesh is like a spoiled brat. That you're far bigger than that little child. But if you let it do what it wants to do, it will gain ascendancy over you. And I'm sure we've all been in, in malls and places where we've seen some little child controlling this mother who's ten times bigger, stronger, provides the food and the transportation. And this child is controlling that family by throwing fits and just letting its flesh run loose. But we do the same thing. It's just we're more sophisticated about it. We're more private about it. And I gotta deal with this just like you do. I'm just, I get no free ride. And so there's things God's begun to deal with me about certain desires I have. And there's, the desires, there's nothing wrong with them. There's, there's, there's no sin in them. It's just that I need to gain some control over some of them. Because if I don't have control of them, then I, they, are, they are an avenue where Satan can take a, a good desire and push it to an extreme. Use it at the wrong time. So the beginning we see here in James, and we'll have to end with this, and we'll pick up uh, later, is when each one is tempted, he's drawn away by his own desires. Satan can't use my desires to draw you away. That means you've got to be sensitive to your desire. What are the things, where do I have desires? What are the things, and I can't, you know, be godly desires, but where do I have control, with, have trouble with my desires? And that's an avenue that Satan either is using or will use to pull you off track. To pull you off track. Say, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't want to find out. I don't want to get off track. I want to stay right on track. Because on track is that narrow road that leads to eternal life. I want to finish and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to receive the crown that he's, Jesus talked about there. That means there's things to overcome. But there's nothing that Satan can bring against you to overcome that God does not enable you to do it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that comes into our life. It's not common to man. There's not something that's unique for you, but with which God does not also give us the ability to endure it so that we can go through it. God is faithful, it says, to do that. But you've got to recognize, we have to recognize where the weaknesses are because that's where he'll work. And most likely... If I were to pass out a piece of paper and a pencil tonight and had you write your weaknesses down, you'd know what they are. They're not some hidden thing for most of us. We know what they are. But we just avoid them. We think, well, that's okay. I'm just human. No, you're not. You're a child of God. You're not just human. 
If you're just human, you need to get saved and become one of God's children. Because we're not just human. And if we think of ourselves just human, Paul in 1 Corinthians says, then you're carnal. If you think you're just human and mere men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you love us so much. You don't abrade us. You don't criticize us. You give us wisdom for what we're facing and going through. You'll prepare us for what's ahead. You'll warn us for what's ahead. You'll help us to go through it. But there's a part we have to play. But tonight I pray, Lord, that the word we've heard by your Spirit will open the eyes of our understanding, that we will recognize the schemes of our enemy. Not be afraid of him, but be recognize the schemes that he's played in our lives and show us that, we may, that we're able to shut the door to him because your Spirit is in us to enable us to overcome. And Father, we thank you for the victory that Jesus overcome, already won. He has overcome the world and given us the peace that comes from his victory over this world. And teach us how to walk in and enter into that victory in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.